So if you got a Bible, would you open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 5? And last week, we began a journey together through uh, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And our hope is we're kind of entering into this new season of life as a church, is that our vision, um, our identity, our passion, and ultimately our practices as a church would be shaped primarily around this person, Jesus, around who he is, around what he's done for us, what he taught, and how he's called us to live as his people. And so we're spending about two months this spring uh, going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> and so our hope, my prayer for us, is that throughout this journey, we would find ourselves being more formed into the image of Christ, that we wouldn't just um, have some fresh new insights or understanding or simply glean some nuggets of truth or inspiration, although all of that is great, but the hope is that by the power of God's Holy Spirit, who we, we believe is alive and at work amongst his people, that we would find ourselves in the process of formation, that we would become people who look more like Jesus in the world not just by modifying our behavior and trying to be good, but by actually becoming new people from the inside out, the people that God originally created and, and eventually redeemed us to become. And so that's the hope and that's the prayer as we move through this sermon uh, series together. And so as we know, the Sermon on the Mount is what's been considered the constitution of the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' manifesto. It's his vision and his dream for a society of people that are formed around his life, work, and teachings. Now, it's important to remember as we come to this passage that what we're dealing here with is a sermon. That is the literary genre that we're talking about. And so, Understanding what kind of uh, scripture we're coming to is going to inform the way that we engage it. So Jesus is preaching a sermon. And what that means is that this isn't just a bunch of random disconnected thoughts, but that there's this really brilliant logical flow that he as a masterful communicator is taking his hearers on a journey and he's building this vision for human flourishing, taking uh, one idea and then building upon it and leading people to this set of ideas that really are revolutionary. They were then and still are now. And so before we come to this week's text, I want to quickly make sure that we get the connection from where we were last week. So we started last week with this set of uh, blessings known as the Beatitudes. And it's, as we talked about, it's Jesus essentially looking out over this ragtag group of people that have gathered around him on the hillside. And he's noticing that amongst them, there's really a whole bunch of the have-nots, of the outcasts, of the hurting, of the poor, the crippled, the lame, those that would be often ignored or oppressed by the society. And Jesus looks out over them, and as he begins to speak, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. He said, we said last week, he's not giving a list of virtues that we should each try to attain to. He's simply describing a list of human conditions that we often find ourselves in. And he's saying that when you find yourself feeling empty, 
When you find yourself feeling rejected, feeling left out, feeling like you have nothing to offer, when life is going poorly, when you are experiencing deep pain and loss, Jesus says, I want you to know you're blessed. You are blessed. And we talked about how the idea blessed is is one that apparently meant something very different to Jesus than the way we use it in our hashtag culture. We typically think that blessed means everything's good. I'm enjoying this day. I'm enjoying this moment. I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm happy. But Jesus goes, no, it's not the rich who are blessed. It's the poor. It's not the celebrating that are blessed. It's those who mourn. And so we're trying to reorient our understanding of what it means when Jesus pronounces blessing upon various people in various conditions. And so what we said is that to be blessed in the language of the scriptures isn't primarily about physical or material uh, wealth or well-being, although sometimes that is an expression of God's blessing or, or, or grace in our life, But the ultimate gift, the best gift that God could ever give is not stuff, but he gives us himself. So when Jesus says, you are blessed, when life is hard, when you've got nowhere to go, when you don't have a way out, I want you to know you're blessed, and here's why. Because God is with you. That is what blessed means. It means that the presence of God is near. And at first, that's a little disappointing. Like, dang, I thought he was going to give me a bunch of sweet stuff. No, he's going to give you himself, no matter what happens, no matter what you lose, no matter where you're hurting. God is with you. You are blessed. So that's where we started last week. Now, to follow the flow of the sermon, this morning we move into this conversation regarding salt and light. Okay, so what Jesus is doing now is taking his hearers on this journey where before he says, hey, I want you to do a whole bunch of stuff and live a certain way, before he commands, he blesses. Before he instructs, he graces. He says, I'm giving myself to you. So he starts with blessing, and now, as we'll see, he moves to this conversation about identity. So even before he gets to more commands, he starts with blessing, and then in the salt and lice that life thing, hopefully not lice, um, <laughs> salt and light, he says, here is who you are, and then later on in the sermon, he goes, so now here's how you should live. Now, what I want you to see is that this whole language of being the blessed people of God is not new in the scriptures. And in fact, Jesus is connecting uh, his hearers way back to an earlier part of the story of God. So early on in Genesis chapter 12, when God's plan for redemption is first beginning to unfold, God calls out this man by the name of Abraham and his family and says, I'm going to choose you as my set apart people in the world. And here's how this reads in Genesis chapter 12, what we know as as the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this language of God blessing his chosen people is not new to Jesus. 
And in fact, he's brilliantly connecting those people that are listening to him on the mount that day way back to this earlier story. That this is the deal God has always had with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. Wherever you go, I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give myself to you. I will pour my life into you. But not just so that you can be comfortable, but so that through you, my blessing, my love, my life, my presence can be distributed to the entire world. This was always God's deal. I will bless you and make you a blessing. I will give myself to you in love, and then you in turn are called to give yourselves to the world in love. So what this meant originally is that if you had an Israelite family move into your neighborhood, you're stoked, right? Because this is what they were living by, meaning everything they had, they understood as a grace, as a gift from God, not to be hogged, but to be shared, So if a Hebrew family moves in down the street and they have a hot tub, you've got a hot tub, right? And if your Israelite co-worker's got a snowmobile, you've got a snowmobile because everything he has is a blessing from God to be used as a blessing uh, to the world. And obviously not just material things, but the love, the security, the identity, the call to radical forgiveness and hospitality. All these things that God blesses his people with, he says, it's not just for you, but it's for you to then spread my life and my love, my blessing to the world. That's what Israel was called to. But as we know, they didn't do so hot. They didn't really get it. And instead of them being a blessing to the nations, the nation of Israel ended up being more deeply affected by the surrounding cultures than those cultures were affected by them. And they began to disappear. And they began uh, this journey of over and over and over failing to be the people that God had called them to be. That's the story of Israel. And so when Jesus shows up, again on a mountain, and there's all kinds of references to, to Moses, like Jesus is this new Moses up on a mountain hearing from God and saying, I'm starting over in some ways. Or I'm beginning the next chapter of this story. And I'm forming a new community. I'm calling together a new humanity. I'm bringing about, if you will, a new Israel. I'm inviting people from all over the world to be joined together with this original plan and vision that God has for his people. And so Jesus, just like the Abrahamic covenant, begins this commissioning of his people with blessing saying, you are the blessed people of God. He is with you. He will be your God, and you will be his people. And it doesn't mean life's going to be easy, and it doesn't mean everything's going to always go the way you want, but it means that no matter what, God is with you. And so, from the very beginning, Jesus is reminding his disciples, or really giving them this vision that as he seeks to bring about the reconciliation of all things, the restoration of God's kingdom on earth, blessing has always been connected to mission. God's blessing is always connected to mission. We are blessed not to be blessed, but so that we can be a blessing to the world. So he starts with blessing and the Beatitudes, and then in salt and light, these four verses, he imparts a sense 
of identity. Okay, so Jesus uses these two really, for many of us, familiar metaphors to give a sense of identity to this community of blessed disciples. And the language he uses when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, isn't that you could be, or that you should be, or that you will be if you want it bad enough. He says, this is already true. You are, as my blessed people, as those on whom my presence dwells, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is language of identity. So again, he's not giving commands. He doesn't say, go be salt or go be light. You are salt and you are light. And so interesting metaphors. And as I've uh, meditated on this throughout the week, at the beginning of the week, I found myself a little bit like, "Eh, salt's not that cool. Right? Like, if Jesus is really trying to impart this, like, spirit-filled, robust, beautiful vision for human flourishing, I'm hoping that he's going to say, you guys are the rock stars of the world, or the CEOs of the world, or you're the rich and famous of the world. And he's like, no, you're, you're actually salt. And uh, it's kind of disappointing at first. But then as you start to wrestle with it, you go, man, this is actually such a brilliant and simple metaphor. Because salt and light are two things that in pretty much every culture, all around the world, all throughout history, are used every single day. They are so basic and so common to human life and to human flourishing that we really don't even have to think about what life would be like without them in our day and age. But we understand that back in in Jesus' time, that salt played, it had this more pronounced role. Right? So uh, some of you guys know the Sunday school answers. What does salt do? Don't try to connect it to Christianity or whatever, but like what, what does salt do? What is it for? It, salt pre- preserves, all right? So before refrigeration or anything else, if you had meat or food or vegetables or whatever that you wanted to preserve and make it through the winter, you would pack it with salt or you would preserve it in a salted brine or something like that. So salt is a preservative that protects food from decay. What else does salt do? It seasons. Good. So if you're a, a hobby cook like I am, you understand how important salt is in and bringing out and enhancing the flavors of whatever it is uh, that you're cooking. And so from way back in this time and even before, uh, people understood that salt was necessary in order to really draw out the flavors and to enjoy the food that you're cooking. In fact, salad comes from the word uh, sal or sal, which is the Latin root where we get salt. It meant salted vegetables, and uh, which sounds not as good as most of the salads we eat. But from the very beginning, salt was designed uh, to enhance the flavor of our food. What else does it do? It cleans. Good. Salt was used and still in many applications today is used to to purify, to clean, to make things uh, presentable and usable again. Somebody else? Yeah, good. So every single living organism actually needs a certain amount of sodium. Sodium is not a thing. Um, Sodium is the word I was looking for. And uh, humans are the same way, right? We have, depending on how much you sweat um, or cry, I guess, you're constantly processing salt. And so there is this biological necessity to it. 
Okay? And so all these things are true, and I could go on and on, but the reality was that in Jesus' day, that meant salt had an incredible economic value. It was something that uh, some people think that we get the word salary from this is how the Roman soldiers were actually paid by the government. Instead of money, they were paid in salt. I think more likely is that the Romans' government paid their soldiers in money, and the first thing they would do is go buy salt so that they could preserve their food and enjoy their life. And so their, their paycheck became referred to as their salt money, right? Meaning the first thing they got, went and did was bought salt. In Bend, of course, we would refer to this as beer money, right? Um, that's, that's the idea. So we have this whole vocabulary around salt, understanding its value, its preciousness, um, the essential nature of it for life. And so um, if you could, we could break down each of these aspects and I could try to draw cute comparisons on how we need to all go and be the season of the world and preserve the culture and that sort of thing. And maybe there's something to that, but I want to sum up this whole idea like this. That if Jesus proclaims to a group of his people that they are the salt of the earth, the first thing I think we need to hear is that means in God's eyes, in God's plan, and in God's vision for the restoration of his world, that you guys are precious. You are essential. You are the ones whom God has chosen to do his work through. You are central to God's vision for the flourishing of his world. You are the ones God has chosen to give life to the world through. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, this same verse. He says, let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be the, be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. There's a high calling that from this place of blessedness, Jesus is now imparting this identity of saying, I have chosen you as my precious ones, holy, dearly loved, to be part of what I'm doing in the world. And of course, God could have chosen some other way or some other group of people to do all this through, just like he could have chosen some other seasoning or, uh, or whatever to, to do the work that salt does, but he's chosen us. And therefore, in his eyes, we have this precious, essential, and central role. Okay, and then we move on to the next metaphor, which is light, which again is one of those things that is just so common and necessary for everyday life in really every culture. Now, we live in a city where there's lots of lights, street lights and headlights and lights on our phones and lights on our cars and that sort of thing. But we can imagine uh, the day and age that Jesus is proclaiming this in, it was very different, wasn't it? And so for any of you that enjoy camping, backpacking, being way out in the woods, way away, away from city and street lights and that sort of thing, you've had those experiences when all the street lights are gone and it's just that beautiful night darkness, and know how much even a single flashlight or a single lantern or something can, can light up a sky. And so that's the world that they're living in, where they had lanterns, they had candles, and they played this essential role. 
And so um, we think that some of these cities, some of these uh, early gatherings of people that would have been lit up in the evenings with their household lights and their city lanterns would have been visible to travelers hundreds of miles away. That as you're on your way to Jerusalem or whatever it is, that the lights of this city would actually be the thing that would guide you in. So Jesus is again not saying, I want you to go try to be light. He's saying, you are the light of the world. As my blessed people, part of the identity that I'm giving to you is to be a light in the world. And again, this isn't a new idea in Jesus' teaching, but it goes back to multiple places where we could, we could draw the connection between this and where we had been in the story. But one, for example, is Isaiah 42, where he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be, that word covenant for people is a reminder back to the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, so this blessed, blessing people for the, and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So again, it's this story that goes deep into the, the tradition of Jesus' first Jewish hearers, that he's reminding them, God has called you to be the light of the world to be a source of illumination, to be a source of power, to be a source of strength and freedom, to be a guide for those that are lost and wondering. And then in uh, verse uh, 15, he uses this language of a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Almost definitely, he's not just kind of uh, bringing up a random idea, but he's probably referring to the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, was the home to this epic city, this central city in the story of God. I've got a picture of it for you. This is modern-day Jerusalem taken from the east side. And you'll see that this is what Jerusalem looks like, these huge hills that the city is built upon. And so again, if you were journeying towards Jerusalem from the surrounding rural areas at night, these cities would be lit up and visible for hundreds of miles. By the way, a year from now, we can be right there, you and me, walking these very streets, ascending Mount Zion. And I do hope that you'll consider coming. And so Jesus is saying, you guys not only are the new Israel, but you're also the new Jerusalem. Not only are you my people, but you're also my place. You are my temple. You are this holy establishment designed to live together as a city of sorts to share life deeply as this kingdom culture that looks totally different than the world, so different that compared to everything else around you, it stands out as this really unique, intriguing, beautiful expression of God's kingdom on earth. And so this metaphor of light, that we are to be the light of the world, we are to be a city on a hill, we are to be... This source in the world where people are watching, people notice, people are getting a chance to see what it looks like for humanity to flourish, for humanity to live in right relationship with God and others. And as a result, they should be drawn towards us, just like your house plants are drawn towards the windows, right? Lean towards the sun. That's what light does. Okay, so we have salt and we have light. He goes, that's who you are. 
That's what I've made you to be and called you to live out of that identity in the world as my blessed ones. You are precious and chosen and essential, and you have this role in the world that's unlike anything else. And then as we get into verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is how this is supposed to work. This is Jesus' vision. That as we live as his blessed blessing people in the world, as salt and as light, the world is watching, the world is noticing, and the world is getting to see a glimpse of who God is and what God is really like, and as a result, the world is glorifying uh, God. Now, here's what's easy to miss. In this passage, but also in this entire sermon and also really in much of the Bible, um, when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he's using the plural form of the word you. And this is so important for us to catch because in our translations, this doesn't come across. And it would be easy for us to look at this sermon and going, Jesus is saying, Pete Kelly is the salt of the earth. Pete Kelly is the light of the world. And that's not at all what he's saying. If you're here from the south, then you have a plural form of the word you, right? What is it, Will? Yeah, Will's the only one that gets to say that here, right? He comes from the great nation of Texas, and that's cool down there. In the northwest, we don't get to say y'all. That's just not going to go over well. Um, but that is essentially the word that Jesus uses here. You all, you together, you as a community of my kingdom on earth are the salt. You all, y'all are the light. I, I can't even do that. You all are the light of the world. That changes this, doesn't it? Although it shouldn't be that stretching. If you think about salt, like one little grain of salt isn't going to do much good. Right? And one little kind of flickering candle isn't going to do much good. But when those things are collected, their power is magnified and their purpose can be achieved. And so that's all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking almost always in the plural form of this word you. He's imagining a collection, a new family, a new nation, a new city, a new humanity of people living this way together in a way that we could never live on our own. And he says the result then is that when you all begin to live out of this identity as my blessed blessing people, that the world is going to see your good deeds and not just see you being good, but actually see you doing good. Not just see you avoiding bad things, but actually engaging in the work of righteousness and justice. And the world, the world is going to watch and notice, and as a result, they're going to give glory to the Father in heaven. Now, glory is an interesting word. The Greek word is doxa, and so it's where we get the word doxology, which in the Bible refers to those psalms or poems or songs or proclamations that are essentially just the writer going, let me tell you how great God is. To his name be praised. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, there is no one like him. We sing a song oftentimes, the doxology, praise God to whom all, from whom all blessings flow. 
right? So a doxology is a word in praise of God. It's an expression to the praise of the name of the Lord. Some of you know that when we planted our church in Corvallis, we named our church doxology because we believe that it is the calling of the church of Jesus to be a living doxology, to live in such a way that the world gets to see the glory of God, the likeness and the character of God in our everyday lives. And that's not just that unique church, but that's the calling of every single church, that our life together would be a living doxology, an expression of praise, lifting people's hearts to heaven, pointing people to the true God of the universe. And so as Jesus is imparting his vision for humanity, this redeemed humanity, he's teaching us something about who we are. We are salt and light. But he's also, therefore, teaching us something about the way that he sees the world we live in. We live in a world that needs salt and in a world that needs light. Meaning we live in a world that is susceptible and prone and marked by decay and darkness. And so the world needs salt to preserve it from the decay, and it needs light to illuminate the darkness. And so this is where we get to what I would say is the main idea for this teaching. As Jesus begins to try to help bring his people on this journey of understanding who are we and what's he calling us to do, and as this relates not just to the first disciples, but to all of us who would come after Jesus today, he's primarily teaching us that the church exists for the world. Salt and light don't exist for themselves. They exist for the things that they're applied to, for the contexts where they're needed. If there was no decay, we wouldn't need salt. If there was no darkness, we wouldn't need light. But the world is hurting, it is broken, it is torn by sin and evil and injustice. And Jesus says, so I'm calling a community together to exist for the sake of this world. The famous Anglican priest, William Temple, famously wrote, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Now, you can argue if that's true and if there really is no other institution like that, but the reality is that does capture Jesus' vision for his kingdom community, that we are here for the life of the world. We are here to not just to be blessed, but we are here in Bend and in Central Oregon to be a blessing, to show the life and the love and the glory that is God. And so that's why Jesus is somewhat harsh here and speaks, frankly, uh, a little bit more harshly than I would prefer. And he's like, so if you're salt and you're not salty, then I don't really know what to do with you. And if you've got light and you hide it under a bushel, no. Like, you got to let that shine. He's going, what's the point of that? What's the point of a church that just exists for itself. It's totally bland salt and totally hidden light. No, the church exists 
for the world. So don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light. Let your light shine in the world. Let the world see who God really is. And so in our last few minutes, I want to take a little bit of time and connect these teachings and this vision of Jesus to where we're at as a church in this time of transition as we enter into a new season. Part of what that looks like is shared vocabulary. What does it mean to be Antioch? What is it that God has called us to do and to be about? And how is he calling us to live in this world and in this city together? And so several months ago, Ken and I together collaborated along with the elders and the staff on coming up with this vision statement that we felt like captured what God was calling Antioch to be all about. And the vision is the reconciliation of all things. And like I've told you before, this is something Ken and I work deeply on together. And even though God has called him on to the next work, this is something that we are still fully committed to. And so when, let me just take a moment and explain. When I say vision, when we talk about the vision or vision statement of a church, we're talking about something that only God can do. If we truly are the people inhabited by the Spirit of God and part of God's mission in the world, then our vision statement should be something that would be impossible without God. And so the reconciliation of all things is our way of articulating the gospel. It's not dependent upon us. God is going to do that. In fact, God is already doing that in the world as we speak. He is making all things new, reconciling all things back to right relationship with himself. That's the vision, is to see God do what only God can do. And if we have a vision statement that we could achieve on our own, excuse me, on our own then our vision is way too small. So our vision is God's vision for the world, for what he is up to, the repair of damaged relationships, the sin-torn world that we find ourselves living in. Jesus is on a mission to make all things new, and so our vision is God's vision, to see him do. And to be honest, he's going to do it whether we're on board or not, so might as well get on board. So the next line down, and some of you guys are kind of organizationally minded, and this will make sense to you, uh, would be our mission statement. Right? So we have a vision, and this is what God's doing. Our mission is, here's what we believe God has called us to do. Here's the part that he's inviting us to play in the pursuit of his vision. Here's what it means for us to be participants in this gospel work. And this will be new language, and it still may get tweaked a little bit, but I want to at least kind of give us a functional paradigm of the mission of Antioch. And that is that we believe God is calling us to partner with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the formation of disciples of Jesus who are being restored to God, themselves, and one another and joining God in his mission in our city, around the world, and with the rest of creation. So our vision is reconciliation. Our mission, in short, is discipleship. It's not to put on cool church services or offer exciting programs or try to compete with whatever cool new church is in town or something like that. Our mission is to see the image of Jesus formed within his people, to see people brought further on this journey towards reconciled relationship with God themselves, each other in the church, 
and with, and with the world out there. That's what we are set on doing. And so I want to actually take a moment and say Antioch had a different mission statement uh, up until this point. And for the last eight or so years, the mission statement that God had led us to was to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and to have a shaping voice in global Christianity. And here's what I want to say about that mission statement this morning. Mission accomplished. And I don't mean it in a George W. Bush way. I mean, we really did that. God really did that through us. That through this early season, the first 10 years of Antioch's life, that he, by his grace, allowed us to become an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, and by his grace made us into a shaping voice in global Christianity. Through the work of this church, through the establishment of the Killens College, through the launching of the Justice Conference, through the global platform, through Ken's writing and speaking and all of that kind of stuff, we've made a mark on the world. And that's amazing. And so we're simply going to celebrate that and say, yes, by God's grace, we were able to accomplish the mission that he gave us in the first season of this church. And so part of this transition now is celebrating that that mission has in large part been accomplished, and now we move our attention towards the formation of disciples. That now our attention moves towards becoming the kind of people God has called us to be in this city, to each other, and around the world. And so uh, this will probably raise a lot of questions in terms of what does this mean or how does that look. We don't actually know yet, but we know this is the work God's called us to. And you are then the missionaries. We, together, are not just consumers or observers of the church or of the ministry, but we are the actual participants. We are the disciples. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, one other layer, and this one we probably won't make real public or whatever just because nobody cares. I do. This is what I do in the shed, by the way, if you remember my shed. When we talk about vision, mission, one third layer then is the idea of operation. How do we begin to organize or think about our shared life together? And I want to say that as a church, we operate as three things at the same time. So first and foremost, we as a church operate as a mission, that we are an outpost of God's kingdom on earth. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the joy of the world, to give life, to be a blessing to our neighbors, to our neighborhoods, to our city, to the surrounding areas. This is our deepest hope that our church would truly become an expression of the gospel, that our presence here in Central Oregon would truly be good news. That even if the people of Bend think that we're crazy for what we believe, that they would be glad that we're here. Because we are serving, we are loving, we are caring, we are cultivating, we are restoring, we are giving ourselves away for the life of the world, even if that means loving our enemies. We are here primarily not for ourselves, but for the world, as salt, as light, as the people of God living on earth for the good of our city. So first and foremost, Antioch operates and exists as a mission a missionary society. Secondly, Antioch's a congregation, a beloved community of saints. You are Antioch. 
You are the church. Church isn't a place that you go or a service that you attend or a building. Church is us. We are the church. And so Antioch exists as a family, as a community, as this new humanity, this new society that's being formed around Jesus. And so we come here on Sundays and other places we meet and gather throughout the week understanding that we need each other to fulfill this vision and mission. Otherwise, we're just individual grains of salt and tiny little pathetic candles. We come together to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to share life deeply as the community of Jesus. So we exist as a sacred congregation. And finally, and this one's the least sexy, uh, Antioch operates as an organization. Let's just call it what it is, a nonprofit religious institution in the world. And um, we have to think deeply about the way that we're going to organize our work and our ministry. We have facilities, and we have budgets, and we have salaries, and we have taxes, and insurance, and policies, and stuff like that, just simply by being a nonprofit organization in the world. But beyond that, I think what we need to see is that we as the church play this unique role within society. That all these different spheres or spaces of society, including education and politics and entertainment and science and medicine, church has a unique place in that. And that we operate uh, in partnership with the other places that God is, work, is at work in the world. And so just real quickly, all three of these are important aspects of our identity. And we know, most of us by experience, what happens when one or more of these aspects of operation are denied, right? We all, for the most part, know what it looks like to be a church that's forgotten that it is primarily to be a mission. A church that only exists for itself, that only exists for its members, that looks more like a country club than a missionary outpost. We've seen what happens when, that, when the church goes that way. We also have seen what happens when a church is all about mission and organization, but its congregation is neglected. When people aren't known or loved or being cared for in life's difficult times. We want to be with each other and grow together as a congregation. And some of us have been part of churches that have not done the organizational piece, right? And I've been part of one of those where it was like, hey, let's not be an organization. Let's be an organism. Let's just be super organic. We're not going to have any hierarchy or policy or structure. We're just going to pray and let the Spirit guide us and see what happens. You know what happens? Chaos, right? Organic gardening takes an incredible amount of skill, right, and uh, structure and special attention. It's not organic gardening just to let everything do what it's going to do. You have to care and nurture. And so this is what Kip's for. He keeps us on track in all these sorts of ways. And so I'm not proposing that this is true. This is true about our church and every other church. This is what we're called to be. But first and foremost, I want you to get this idea that, number one, we are an outpost of God's kingdom on earth. The church exists not for ourselves, but for the life of the world. Okay, last thing as I bring you to the table. Salt and light work best when they disappear. Salt isn't supposed to make food salty. It's supposed to make food taste more like itself. So in order to do its job of seasoning, Salt needs to fade away. 
And likewise, light, in order to do its job, has to burn itself up. A candle gets shorter and shorter the longer it burns and the more light that it gives. And eventually, it dies. So salt and light give life by disappearing or by dying. And what I want to say to you is that if we are called by Jesus to be salt and light in the world, then that's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us some convenience, some familiarity, some comfort. But it won't cost us anything compared to what it cost Jesus to be the true light of the world. As he says in verse 15, if you have a light, you don't put it under a bowl, but instead you raise it up onto a stand. And the stand that Jesus was lifted up on was a cross, where he was lifted up for the whole world to see, where he took on all of the decay and all of the darkness, and he absorbed it into himself, dying for our sins. And so when we look at the cross, we see the true glory of God. The clearest picture of who God really is. And what do we see? We see a man who suffers and dies that others may live. That is who our God is. That is what our God is like. God who has entered into the brokenness, the decay, the darkness, the suffering of the world and broken himself open and poured himself out that that world may have life. And that's the God who is inviting us to himself this morning as you come to the table to commune with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We come needing his salt and his light his love and his identity, his grace to be poured into our hearts again. So come and be blessed and go be a blessing. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your son. The true light of the world has come to us. And by the power of your spirit, we are now joined together in union with Jesus so that his life is now our life. His mission is now our mission. His standing with you, his record before you has now been imparted to us as well. And so we come rejoicing in your life-giving blessing, your tangible touch of grace that we find in this bread and in this cup. And Lord Jesus, we want more than anything to be your people in this world. We want to truly live as those that are salt and light, as a city on this hill that would draw many people to you. So you've given us everything we need to do what you've called us to do. So we come 
with expectant, ready hearts to be blessed by you and used by you to serve and give life to the world. We need your spirit in Jesus' name.